My name is Roz Nazdar. I'm pro bono counsel at Ropes and Gray, and it's my pleasure to welcome you all to this session, Use Your Legal Skills for Good, Pro Bono Opportunities Here and Now. My background is as a practicing attorney. I spent about a dozen years at the AG's office, consumer protection, civil rights, and labor, um, as well as some time as an associate at a big firm. I've been in this role at Ropes for about 14 years. And my full-time job is basically to develop meaningful pro bono work for our lawyers, who, like many of you, are busy with their commercial practice as well. I do that by listening and learning from experts in the field, legal service, um, legal service organization leaders, many of whom you'll be meeting today. Um, and they teach us um, about what, what are the greatest needs right here and right now in the community, um, educate us, and provide training and mentoring for those of us who are newer to the areas. We've assembled this group of experts for you today so you can learn how to pitch in here and now. The target audience today is you, candidly, any and all lawyers. Some of you are from big firms um, and maybe have a pro bono counsel or someone like that um, in your firm. And others of you are from small firms or individually um, attending. Um, the purpose of this session is to include you all um, and to help you overcome any fears and obstacles about getting involved. We want you to leave with an action plan and tools for how to get started. So again, lawyers from any background, whether you're the most junior just out of law school, all the way to some of our speakers who are um, more senior or retired, um, there's something for everyone, whether you're a corporate lawyer, a tax lawyer, healthcare, litigation. Again, most of the areas that we're going to be practicing in pro bono aren't even matching our commercial areas. So we expect you to come with little or no experience, and we have the experts here to teach you how to get started. When we were originally formulating this panel, it was about a year ago and things were shifting from fully remote to in-person and some hybrid. And when we formulated the, this program, we thought we would you know, mix things up by what's in-person, what's remote, what's hybrid. Um, and we know that for some private attorneys, it's easier to do um, pro bono work from your desk. Um, we understand that. Um, we also understand for some pro bono clients, that's easier. They may have many competing demands with, with childcare or transportation that makes it easier to log in. But we also recognize there are many kinds of work, maybe domestic violence and other um, asylum or other, or other kinds of conversations that are harder to have um, online or remotely um, and may be better handled uh, in person. And so we decided to chuck that plan <laughs> um, and have instead just focus on the needs. Um, how do we serve each client who is unique um, and has different, um, comes at things differently with a different um, lived experience um, and each type of project is going, you know, could combine some combination of in-person or remote needs um, depending on, on the client. So, um, Again, we're focusing today on the need, um, and I want to turn it over to um, some of our experts so that you can learn how to get started. Uh, just a couple of things. Um, first, um, we are focused today on low-income individual clients. There are, of course, many other ways to do pro bono work, but that's where we're seeing the greatest need here in Boston, and so that's, that's who we're introducing you to today. At the end of the program, we'll be sharing a handout with, with these contacts and a few others that you can click for a link to how to how to get in touch with the person who's organizing that work um, so that there's no uh, need to pause. Um, for those at firms who do have pro bono counsel, I would stop with the pro bono, start with the pro bono counsel because they might already have some of these relationships that they're organizing. But if you're from a smaller firm um, or on your own, please just do click and contact these folks directly. 
Um, if you have questions that Noah said, as Noah said, during the presentation, please pose them in the Q&A and I will um, direct them to the panelists um, or to the group at the end if it's something for everybody to weigh in on. Um, we can say this at the end too, but I just want to thank um, Mia Friedman, who's um, who will be participating in, uh, in part in this program for her help in organizing this presentation um, and to the whole delivery of legal services um, community, who um, this, the section of the BBA um, who's participated in many, many meetings um, and given input to hopefully make this um, a meaningful session for you all. So to get started, I'd like to introduce um, Jen Howard, who is the Director of Legal Programs at Rosie's Place, a important, important part of our Boston community. Um, and Jen's gonna talk to us about, um, just to give us a flavor of the, of the pro bono needs in Boston and the ones that she's seeing on the ground at Rosie's Place. Jen? Thanks, Roz, and good afternoon, everybody. I am amazed and so excited that there are so many people participating today and really hopeful to imagine how many people might be watching the recording sometime later. If you're on this call right now, there's probably not much that I need to tell you to convince you that there's a need for your help right now. The fact that you're here tells us all that you, that you know that. The headlines in the news today give us so many clues about the types of crises that are facing people in our community who are struggling with poverty. Eviction rates are back up to pre-pandemic levels um, at the same time that our family shelter system is already operating beyond capacity, forcing some families to actually have to live in motel rooms. The number of families risking everything to come to the US and escape their uh, unimag unimaginable levels of violence in their home countries has also risen and is straining our, our current social safety net. And also this year, uh, we've unfortunately already heard of, of a number of very tragic domestic violence homicides that have happened here in Massachusetts this year. Thinking about all this, I know for, for me, when I hear about it in the news, it can feel kind of overwhelming. And you may be asking yourself, you know, what can be done really to meet this insur insurmountable need? And what difference can a lawyer make? And I'm here to tell you, you can make a whole lot. I wanna start by just sharing some inspiring words from Brian Stevenson, who you might have heard of before. He's an incredible advocate, lawyer, and founder of the Equal Justice Initiative that focuses on advocacy for people living on death row. He tells us the opposite of poverty is not wealth. In too many places, the opposite of poverty is justice. Who better to help pursue this justice than us, the Boston, greater Boston legal community? I wanna give you a couple of examples of where a lawyer can really help somebody pursue justice. A lawyer can help a family understand the complicated rules around eviction, help them keep a roof over their head a little longer if they can explain to them the, the process for uh, applying for financial assistance and, and the impact that that application can have on their legal case. A lawyer can help a survivor of domestic violence finally legally end a marriage by helping them understand how to serve an abuser who up to this point has been unwilling to reveal where they're living. A lawyer can help a young person understand how to tell the story of the conditions in their home country that would help them um, be able to qualify for important asylum protection. A lawyer can help an elderly man avoid signing an agreement with a creditor to repay an old credit card debt when his only income is a $900 monthly social security check. 
uh, a lawyer can help a grandmother seeking to, to access the family state shelter system with a grandchild she's raised from birth by helping her obtain legal guardianship. A lawyer can help a mother of three teenagers who starts a job and goes through the training period for a couple of days before the employer actually runs a quarry and then lets the mom go because she has a criminal record. A lawyer can help a tenant prevent, uh, prevent a tenant from being bullied into signing a repayment agreement that they're never gonna be able to comply with. Navigating the court system without attorneys leaves many people without meaningful access to justice. Without the benefit of legal training and practice, most don't know what their rights are or how to act, um, effectively assert them. The consequences can be devastating because of what's at stake. We're talking about very basic necessities, a home, safety, financial security. Giving your time and talents can mean that somebody stays housed, gains uh, limit legal immigration status, obtains critically needed child support, obtains disability benefits, becomes more employable, secures the documents and uh, processes necessary to take care of an adult disabled child or a grandchild who might otherwise be bound for foster care. I will tell you recruiting for volunteer lawyers sometimes feels like making the million dollar ask for donations. But I wanna encourage you just as they do in every fundraiser you've ever been to, give what you can. Any time that you spend volunteering to help somebody understand and assert their rights makes an impact. Don't get me wrong, if you can give the million dollars, we need it. If somebody was to ask me today what my dying wish was, I would say, please make sure my children are taken care of and call Lola Remy and tell her you will take a divorce case because that's what we really, really need. But if all you have time for, all you feel comfortable with now is uh, doing a shift at the lawyer for the day table, know that doing that is gonna make an incredible difference. Sometimes a lawyer is needed to make a complicated legal argument, but even when there's no legal argument to make, standing alongside somebody who's confused and scared by the legal system can really change their life. I wanna end again by just um, reminding you what Brian Stevenson said. The opposite of poverty is not wealth. In too many places, the opposite of poverty is justice. So please, please find the opportunity that fits right for you and sign up. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jen, um, for those really inspiring remarks. Um, I just really appreciate everything that you said. Um, I want to introduce next um, Larry Rowe, who's a perfect person to follow. Larry is a corporate partner at Ropes and Gray. Um, so not what you would expect as the first person to um, get involved in a homeless clinic program, uh, or maybe it is the first person, but I think Larry, um, Larry just demonstrates that, you know, any point in your career, um, you can jump into something new and, and give back uh, and do so and in inspiring more junior associates and paralegals to come along. So I'll turn it over to Larry to tell you his story. Thanks, Ross. And thanks also, Jen, for describing the, the issues and problems so well. Uh, what we do with Ropes and Gray, and we work at Rosie's Place with a, a debt clinic at Rosie's Place, a walk-in debt clinic. The idea really was the idea of my friend and colleague, Ann Milners, who came to Rosie's Place um, about eight years ago and simply just asked what was their biggest need? How could we be most helpful to them? And Rosie's Place responded with the idea of helping with consumer debt in some way. And what we came up with was the debt clinic. And the way the debt clinic works is 
It's a once a week walk-in debt clinic where people can come walk in and get help with any uh, consumer debt or other debt problems they may have. And exactly as Jen says, a lot of times the issue is simply having someone to be with them as they deal with the problem, someone to interpret what the creditor is saying, someone who can talk on the phone for them with a creditor and work out whatever issues there may be. We don't, we're not always successful, but we certainly can help people along those ways. Um, and I think, you know, one of the examples I give uh, to our volunteers is, you know, imagine if you own a car, which I'm sure some people do, and if you the car has a warranty on it, and when the warranty expires, you often get something in the mail which says, oh, if you want to buy an additional warranty, here's for $2,000, you can buy the additional warranty. And for most of us, we say, okay, yes, we want it, and we sign up, or no, we don't want it, we throw it in the mail. But imagine if you get that and read it and are not sure if maybe you owe another $2,000 on the car that you didn't really think you did, but on the other hand, here's this sort of official looking notice and they are kind of official looking if you take a minute to look at them. And so they can, a lot of what we do is coming, is having them come to us and explain what it is they actually are receiving and what the best way to deal with that is. And then we help them deal with that. So when we started, none of us had any experience in this of any kind whatsoever. I mean, not one of us did. Um, and what we did was we got ourselves educated through the National Consumer Law Center, which they will run programs in this and probably a lot of other things too, but I only know about this one. Um, and that was helpful. But I think what has been really the most helpful has been the actual experience as we do it. Um, we all all of us learn things and take that knowledge and apply it the next time and the next time and the next time. And we have the Jen, who's a wonderful resource also for things which she's encountered that we haven't encountered. But that is the day-to-day -day actual experience is the is the best for it. We did not walk in already experts in this area. The other thing I wanted to mention about the debt clinic is one of the things I think has made it successful at Ropes and Gray is that it, we only ask the volunteer to work on it for two hours. They are welcome to continue with their with whoever they're working with and to continue on whatever matter they're working with until it's resolved, but they don't have to. We keep extensive records, and so they can easily hand off the matter to the next volunteer. So anyone who only has two hours to spare, we still can use those two hours productively, which is right along the lines of what Jen was saying about, you know, we'll take anything. So we have some volunteers who come week after week. We have others who come once and that's all they come for, but all of them are really valuable. And we have designed the program to make it so that we can, I want to use the word extract, it sounds very harsh, but we can find value in even two hours from somebody will be extremely valuable to the doc clinic. So I hope that's helpful. And you know, as Roz and Jen said, we welcome any questions people might have about that. But that's the debt clinic in a nutshell. I think I've, Jen, tell me if I missed something important, but I think I got everything, all the highlights at least. No, it is. I think that that you're right, Larry, that that's a great model of, of being able to plug people in um, to meet a very acute need and reading those kind of letters like about the warranty. 
it's, you don't necessarily have to have incredible legal skills, but having but somebody do that know and read and understand, right? Incredibly helpful. Subject matter, you can just do it with you know some you know basic skills. So thank, thank you, Larry. Um, later in the program, you're, we're going to hear from Fabiana Videla, who is um, at St. Francis House, um, another homeless shelter, and she's going to talk to us about um, some other ways for people to to jump into existing programming, um, similar um, and 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 other options. So we're now going to turn um, the mic over to um, a dear uh, friend of mine and mentor, um, uh, the Honorable or former Judge Ernie Saracen. Uh, Ernie has had an illustrious career um, doing consumer and legal services work um, in many different jurisdictions. He then served, I was going to say honorably, um, <laughs> but served as um, a judge um, here in Massachusetts for a dozen years and started a new career as a pro bono attorney after that, uh, working closely with um, Volunteer Lawyers Project. So I'm going to turn it over to Ernie to tell you about some of the projects he's been working on. Um, with the hope that it will help give people some more ideas. Ernie? Thanks, Roz. Um, again, my name is Ernie Saracen, and it's a pleasure to be here to talk about my experience as a pro bono lawyer with a volunteer lawyers project, which I'll refer to as VLP. And when I retired from the bench four years ago, I decided one of the things I wanted to do was to represent individual clients in court, something I hadn't done for more than 45 years. And I, I got into that through um, VLP and through the Access to Justice program. And it was with some trepidation because this is um, really a, a brand new experience. Um, but, and I was worried, you know, will I be able to, will, will I be able to do it? And and I found much to my surprise and relief, I was able to do it. And I was able to do it because of what VLP offered. VLP has offered training and guidance and consultation. And let me give you examples of how VLP has helped me in my practice. Uh, one, one kind of case I've been doing is uh, representing a low-income homeowner in Waltham against whom a default judgment was taken and the appeal period was about to lapse and her attorney had been suspended from the practice by the BBO. So there were some time pressures, but I took them on and I knew nothing about appellate division practice or laws or regs, but luckily VL, and not, but not unusually VLP connected me to a very experienced um, appellate lawyer who told me what kind of papers to file and how to get the uh, extension of time to file an appeal. And then he helped me assemble the record and get, and get the transcripts. And then he and I worked very closely together. And he was so helpful in my writing the appellate brief. Also, I... Um, when I left the bench, I don't have a law office. I practice from my home. And um, to say that my electronic and computer skills are minimal would be an exaggeration. That is, I don't have any. But the VLP staff and the paralegals, they were so helpful in getting my papers filed and served electronically. Um, 
Other kinds of cases include those mentioned by Larry just now, consumer credit cases for either consumers who have been sued by credit card um, assignee companies, that is companies that buy credit card debt, or um, creditors who have judgments and are seeking to attach wages. There's there's good case law in both areas. You're, you're not you're not you don't have to just beg for mercy. You can actually assert good defenses. And I learned about those defenses through VLP. VLP provided excellent training and materials. And again, they have experts who I consulted and boy, did I consult. And another good thing about VLP is that they screen the clients. And then it's you who decides, do I wanna represent that particular client? And if you can sign up for the program, but you don't have to take every client. As uh, Jen said earlier, give what you can. And if you feel like you can take on a client and have the time and the energy to represent the client, and of course you wanna engage in vigorous advocacy, you'll do so. And you take on the client, and then all your traditional legal skills come to the fore, interviewing and negotiating and problem solving. And if you get in a court, advocacy, both orally and written. And another good thing about these cases is they move quickly, not so quickly that you're, you're scrambling, but they have a beginning and the end. And within a couple of months, you're in court arguing before a judge or before a magistrate. And for me, who hadn't done that for so many years, it, it was a great experience and I'm, I'm enjoying it so much. And the clients are very grateful and appreciative. I mean, they're clients, we all know about problems with clients, but for the most part, they're terrific people and they are grateful for your representation. And for yourself, from a selfish point of view, it's an exciting time. You're learning new areas of the law you don't need any prior experience, as both Jen and Larry said. Just be willing to learn, willing to work, and using your legal skills for deserving clients. So in the end, I'm so glad I signed up for VLP because it's been a rewarding and fulfilling experience, both personally and professionally. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ernie. Um, really enjoyed hearing um, hearing it from your perspective. I'm now going to turn it over to Joanna Ellison, uh, the one and only um, director of uh, executive director of VLP, uh, to talk more specifically about some of the ways you can jump into working with VLP, like Ernie. Thank you, Roz. I, I want to start my first five to seven minutes thanking Ernie. Um, I don't know if any of you remember the life. I mean, wasn't that great? Do I need to say anything after that? Um, but if you remember the life cereal commercial where there was that little kid there who was really um, cantankerous and they said, well, let Mikey try it. He'll do anything. Um, although he's not really cantankerous. Ernie is my Mikey. Um, if um, if something comes up, I say, you know, <laughs> let's give that to Ernie. He'll do it. Um, but um, it is true that we provide a lot of background for people, a lot of backup for people. Um, we have trainings available that we run um, 
every month. Um, if you look on our website, which will show up in the handout this afternoon, I mean, when Roz sends that out, you can see that we have um, a lot of services available to people. We also work cooperatively with our, our fellow legal aid um, agencies, like the people here, um, um, referring back and forth, working together. So um, I think you can always find a place at one of these places. And my hope is that you would um, pick and choose and find a place at, at multiple places in different areas of the law. Um, Right now, our consumer work is um, is sort of in a hybrid state. So the, some of the consumer courts um, debt collection cases will be um, online. Some will be in person. And we're looking for folks who are interested in going in in person, um, both on consumer debt collection cases, um, but also uh, housing cases, eviction cases. Uh, at the um, Eastern Housing Court. And then we have a statewide project that's totally online um, where we assist low-income um, homeowners, owner-occupied, who um, need to deal with um, tenants who aren't paying, mortgages that are coming due, and other things. And we also do training on that. Um, so um, we also have a family law and guardianship that the numbers are going through the roof. We have a clinic and um at the Woburn Court, and we also have a clinic at the Court Service Center in Boston. Um, last week, one of those clinics saw 30 people. So um, so those are our main needs right now, these in-person clinics at the various courts in, in the several areas of the law. And what I see, um, I still go to housing court, um, is that some of it's the same problems we always had, but the people's ability to um, to navigate and their ability to remain calm in the face of this is severely impacted by the three years that um, of the pandemic. Many of them, I think Lola and Jen can say, um, they have been housed and basically trapped with their abuser um, so that the, um, the, the need and the fear are greater than ever. Um, so our need um, but not our fear is greater than ever. We would love the opportunity to um, avail you of our trainings. Um, we would love the opportunity to give you a chance to go to these clinics and serve people in person. And particularly, we love the opportunity to give you a decent story to tell at dinner that night um, because your kids will love it. They love hearing about the day in housing court. They love hearing about the client you assisted for whom it made a huge amount of difference in whether or not they were able to buy groceries. So thank you all for coming. I see that we have um, 60 over 60 people here. Um, so I do expect to see all of you signing up on our website, um, or at least someone's website here, um, so that we can can give you the opportunity to serve. Thank you. Thank you, Joanna. One quick question for you. Is there, um, does BLP still have the um, answer, and answer and discovery clinic? Um, we do for housing um, online. Yeah. Is that one still online? That one's still online. And um, and that's an excellent opportunity. Again, most of these are you handle the case that day, much like the other um, Jen's program. You work with someone that day and we have copious notes and you don't have to take the case beyond that. You're certainly welcome to. And in our appellate project, people often take cases for full appeal. Um, but the Answering Discovery Clinic allows you to assist people in answering their um, the complaint in their eviction case um, and claiming their um, counterclaims and defenses and oftentimes turning the tide on those eviction cases and giving them at least the outline of how to present their case and, and what they need to do. So, again, all of these things are on the um, 
on our website, particularly the Answer and Discovery Clinic is um, is great for firms who commit to um, one day a month. And the more of those clinics that we can have, the more people we can assist. We turn away people um, every week that um, when the Answer and Discovery Clinics are full. So we'd love to develop some more. Thank you, Joanna. I'm um, now going to turn um, to Anita Sharma, who is the executive director of PAIR, our local political asylum and immigration representation project, to talk to us about um, the needs that she's seeing, particularly from the immigrant perspective. Great. Thanks, Roz. Um, again, my name is Anita Sharma. I'm the executive director of and a senior attorney at the PAIR project. I'm also on the steering committee of delivery of legal services. So thank you all for inviting me, inviting me to this powerful event. It's an honor for me to share his pair's work and to be a part of the BBA's programming to promote pro bono um, opportunities and to share, like all my colleagues, all the ways that you can help fill in the gap to access to counsel. Um, I will be sharing the needs and obstacles that asylum seekers face, and then also sharing a little bit about how you can fill in the gap and, and take on a case. As way of background, um, you know, some people will ask me, why does somebody want to apply for asylum? You know, wh what is the immigration, the immigration world all about? And um, I think it's helpful just to explain what's going on worldwide and then bring it to Massachusetts. So each year, there are over 90 million people around the world who are forced to flee their homes due to war, persecution, and human rights violations. These are people who leave everything behind. They're terrified. They're alone. They have very little resources. There are over a million asylum seekers in the United States with over 70,000 in Massachusetts alone. And shockingly, asylum seekers do not have the right to a free attorney in immigration court, although the stakes of deportation for these people are life and death. And so PEAR, founded in 1989, fills in the gap. We work with our clients both asylum seekers who are not detained and also immigrants who are unjustly detained by the Immigration and Customs Enforcement. We work with the immigrant community and with our clients to provide access to counsel and to provide access to justice, hope, and safety. Um, pair staff attorneys and volunteer attorneys ensure the due process rights of immigrants through high quality and reliable legal services so that Asylum seekers who are going to the asylum um, office or going to immigration court are not having to go alone. Um, PAIR has provided direct legal services and consultation to more than 20,000 clients um, since we were uh, created. And we represent hundreds of asylum seekers, victims of torture, unaccompanied minors, and detained immigrants in need of relief. And we have an unparalleled success rate in our asylum program of winning 96% of our asylum cases, although the um, approval rate at the Boston Asylum Office is quite low and um, kind of ranges to 12 to 24% and um, for, is about 47% at the immigration court. PAIR accomplishes, accomplishes its mission through two primary programs, the Pro Bono Asylum Program and the Detention Program with 19 staff members but with a panel of over 1,500 volunteer attorneys. So we get our work done because of all of you out there. What are some of the challenges that our clients are, are, are facing? And I wanna echo what Allison said. So there've always been challenges, um, in particular for asylum seekers, right? They flee their countries, they don't have anything, they, they, they don't have resources. When they come to the US, many of them you know, face 
um, financial insecurity, housing insecurity, food insecurity. They don't have a support network. They don't have a family to turn to. And then, um, you know, there are systemic challenges systemic racism within our courts and our asylum office uh, increases and in living with the fear of, of this increase of ICE enforcement, right? Um, workplace raids or just, you know, having somebody who's undocumented constantly live with the fear of legal instability, lack of legal status that could get them arrested and detained. Barriers like language access, it blows my mind that in immigration court and, and before Department of Homeland Security, the, the the already complex and very hard and difficult to navigate, you know, 12 page asylum form is only available in English. Um, backlogs at our court and asylum office, I had mentioned before, um, you know, we have, we have many, many asylum seekers, um, 70,000 backlog asylum applications in Massachusetts alone. And our clients are having to wait years and years, often three to five years, just to get their day in court or before the asylum office so they can tell their story. Meanwhile, they're all separated from their family back home, their children, um, their partners. And that is very, that's a weight that's very, very difficult for our clients to carry. In addition, um, the impact, sort of the mental health impact of like traumatic events. Many of our clients are survivors of torture, survivors of violence, and they are carrying their trauma and the impact of their trauma every single day while they wait to win their cases. A few more um, things I'd like to mention are sort of like the, the I, I wanna call it almost the dehumanization of our system where our clients are being um, put in a position where they have to prove their case None of our clients have direct evidence to prove their cases. There's no torturer who writes on a piece of paper, you know, I harm so-and-so in this manner um, for this reason on this date, signed government official, but that's the pressure, that is the burden our clients carry. And that's because the adjudicators are asking. And so helping our clients gather evidence, gather proof, gather support letters, you know, do the country conditions research, which supports their claim um, it's really difficult. It's almost impossible, I would say, to do this all pro se. Um, use of video hearings um, with, in particular in Boston, where you have um, judges who sit in other jurisdictions. So you might have somebody in Virginia or Texas, and you know they have their own sort of culture of what they approve and what they don't approve, judging our clients. Um, and again, the, the use of video, you know, is there are good things about remote hearings and and um, and bad things about remote about remote hearings. It is very difficult though for for asylum seekers in particular because I said right, there's no direct evidence. Their cases are being decided based on how an adjudicator perceives their credibility. You know, what kind of credibility do you present? I mean, we try really hard to to help our clients uh, obviously prepare and present as credibly as possible, but that's really hard when you have a video. And then in general, so I like to wrap up obstacles, just draconian changes to law and policy. It is impossible, I would say, for asylum seekers to navigate the immigration court system today on their own and really to present their cases so that it meets legal eligibility and to win. Hair plays a very important part in coordinating efforts to serve asylum seekers mainly by leveraging volunteer services. And our goal, and our goal since the day we were in, you know, our, of our inception is to serve as many asylum seekers and detained immigrants who are being unjustly um, held by ICE. How do we serve them? By ensuring 
that they can navigate the immigration system, that they can present their cases, that they can tell their stories, that, that they have their referrals to the resources that are needed to empower them. And I would say our work is more crucial than ever given the impact of the pandemic. Uh, asylum seekers, like study after study show that asylum seekers are four times more likely to win their case if they have an attorney. And this is not an immigration attorney. You do not have to be an immigration expert to win these cases, but they're more likely to win their case with an attorney than trying to go pro se. And PEAR is making a difference here. Last year, we served over 700 new clients with intake, one-on-one -on -one consultation, or full representation. And you know we are just working really, really hard with our network of volunteer attorneys to close the gap between legal need and access to justice. So this is where all you can make a difference. You know, and this is why you'll hear me in all over the place, anywhere I can go to talk about PEAR's work and to talk about why we need more volunteers to help PEAR do its important work. Asylum, you've heard me talk, is not an easy process. Um, you can do it, even if you're not an immigration expert at PEAR. We do training. Um, we do very, very close mentoring. We do strategic backup. You know, if you take a case from PEAR, you get matched with a mentor. Everybody who takes a case from PEAR gets matched with a mentor. That mentor is there for you. You can call me to say, hey, Anita, what color paper do I print that form on to? Hey, Anita, um, I'm trying to work with my client on the draft affidavit, but I know I can't get through. I, my client won't talk about, you know, certain arrests. What should I do to, Anita, I have an asylum interview coming up. Can you, you know, pretend to be the asylum officer or I have this judge. Can you help me kind of strategize? We're there for very close mentoring and, and, and a very strong partnership. Our clients face so many barriers to winning their cases. Immigration law is complicated. An asylum case can take three to eight years to resolve, you know, a hundred hours of attorney time, thousands in legal costs if they were, you know, to uh, try to hire someone, which most of our clients absolutely cannot. Um, and so, our success is only possible because of, I would say, the dedication of the pair staff who mentored these cases, but all of you out there, you know, who are also kind of going into your uncomfort zone to take on a pair matter. Um, I wanna end just by telling a quick story about the impact of our pro bono attorneys. Um, so uh, many years ago, a client walked into our office, um, our client Octavio was targeted by the Honduran government beaten, abducted, and brutally tortured solely because he was a member of the LGBTQ community and he dared to criticize the government for its poor human rights record um, and, and treatment of the LGBTQ community. He fled Honduras, he escaped to the United States. There's nothing set up for him. He didn't have any support. He somehow like found his way to our door. And when he came in, I, I sat with him, I listened to his story, I did an asylum intake and then conducted screening to make sure he met legal eligibility. I knew about you know the one-year filing deadline. Asylum applications have to be filed within one year of somebody entering the US. And then after doing all that thorough screening, we um, accepted his case and matched him with a pro bono attorney at Burns and Levinson. I mentored the case. I worked with a pro bono attorney who was you know, a transactional attorney, not even a litigator. Um, and certainly not doing immigration work. And I remember telling Octavio that the asylum process was not gonna be easy, but that pair was gonna be with him every step of the way. And thanks to his pro bono legal team, 
Octavio was able to win his case. The attorney worked with Octavio, although in the beginning, he just, he had such a hard time telling his story and he didn't want to tell his story, but of course you can't win these cases unless the adjudicators understand why asylum relief is needed. Octavio won and today he is a thriving entrepreneur, a naturalized US citizen and an active member of the PEAR board. PEAR serves hundreds of clients like Octavio every year. When an asylum seeker comes to us, they are um, you know, ex made extremely vulnerable. They themselves are not vulnerable. They are made vulnerable by our systems. They are traumatized, they feel overwhelmed. And so, you know, pairs there to fill in that gap. I, I'm gonna kind of end by mentioning a few of the possible, the kind of suite of client-centered and holistic pro bono opportunities that we provide. Um, if you're really interested in kind of understanding what it's like to work with a client, what it's like to, um, you know, work with somebody to gather their story, you know, maybe you're not ready to take on the full case, you could volunteer to do asylum intake and screening. That's, you know, a couple of hours, four or five hours maximum. You sit with a, a, a potential asylum seeker and you work with them so that they can share what they've been through. And then, you know, you work with your peer mentor uh, on for, for sort of further screening, follow-up and legal eligibility. You could also, if you had, you know, you didn't want to, you wanted to maybe spend a day to work on a pair case, you could do legal consultation and legal orientation in one of the two detention facilities that pair provides. So that's like an all day. Um, you go with pair staff who are, you know, the experts um, in asylum and other humanitarian forms of relief. You would be going pair is one of um, pair is actually the only nonprofit with negotiated access to go into ICE facilities. We go into the units to do legal orientation intake and screening with the goal of taking on as many cases as possible. Um, but you could, if you just wanted to do sort of the intake part, you could go with pair staff and spend a day in an ICE unit and, and try to help and um, do intake for as many. Now, if you're, you know, you do an intake, maybe it turns out that some of the folks that you intake are bond eligible. That's another project. So that's more than a day though. It's about 20 hours. You could do bond um, or habeas um, relief. Um, if somebody's habeas eligible. And that's to help somebody, an immigrant who's unjustly um, detained to win release from custody. It is limited scope. You don't necessarily have to stay on for the entire case. Um, but, but what I've noticed is, you know, people will do the bond case. Maybe if they win, um, the client, you know, then gets a lot more time. So they could or, or not take, take um, stay on for the case. But I've seen where somebody doesn't win their case, by the time you kind of do the bond case, you get so involved in the client in the client's story that many then say, I'm gonna fight this case all the way and you know, try to really get released. Um, of course, our, our main goal is always to push, you know, full representation, pro bono representation of asylum seekers like Octavio, where, you know, volunteers coming in and taking on the case, um, the full representation case, presenting the case either before the asylum office or the immigration court, again, lots of um, mentor mentorship and strategic backup. Um, if you only had limited time, but you actually still wanted to work on an asylum case, we now have limited scope projects like working on a work card, helping with a nice check-in, doing country conditions research, or doing a skeletal asylum application um, filing. And then other opportunities are doing helping us do community education to really prevent fraud and misinformation in immigrant communities. That's again, about a couple of hours, two or three hours. The presentations are scripted. We're not doing advisals. We just kind of go out in the community to help people, you know, cause we get phone calls. 
somebody told me if I pay $10,000, you know, I'll get my green card. And like, no, no, there's no such thing. So we really like to go out and provide legal updates and opportunities. Um, so I'll kind of end by saying, you know, the lots of legal service opportunities, lots of pro bono opportunities. With our free legal services, PAIR does provide the pathway to justice, hope, and safety for our clients. Our clients are empowered. They win asylum. They work. They reunite with their families. They get to apply for their green cards, and they're on a pathway to citizenship. For me personally, I've been at PAIR for 20 years, um, over 20 years. And working with my clients, working with asylum seekers is one of the most meaningful things I've ever done in my life. I just feel, you know, I'm just a small part. I'm an important part, but I'm a small part in the casework and in helping a client, you know, tell their story. It's really the clients who are carrying the burden and who have to like prove to the adjudicators. But for me, like playing that small part is just every day when I wake up, just like so inspiring. And so I hope all of you will consider taking a case, whether from Pear or one of um, from one of my colleagues. But thank you so much. Thank you so much, Anita. Um, you obviously feel so passionate about what you do and it's contagious. Um, I'll just add one more. Uh, well, I'm not I'm plugging everybody on here, but um, just to say it, some of those asylum cases, I know they sound really long. Um, one way that we've been able to manage that at our firm, and I think at a lot of firms, is we have teams of people work together so that you know, it's not quite as many hours, but you have um, get the satisfaction of doing this meaningful work um, and can trade off if your commercial work gets busier, um, tag team on the on the work. So we're now going to um, move to Fabiana Videla, um, who is the guest services manager at St. Francis House, one of the homeless shelters that is part of um, Lawyers Clearinghouse Networks, um, for Mass Legal Clinic for the Homeless. Um, and a lot of firms and individuals um, participate in these clinics. Um, we want to see how, uh, how we can all get involved in that work. Um, and so I'm going to turn it over to Fabiana. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, so yes, I started uh, working at St. Francis House as a volunteer. Um, I then took a first job in here in 2016 as the day shelter coordinator. And one of my first responsibilities that I got was coordinating the legal clinic with Lawyers Clearinghouse. Um, since then, I've had the pleasure to work with uh, several of their managers, um, Mary Beth, uh, Mia, Mosu, and now Sean. And I have no words to describe the efficiency, the professionalism, the compassion and the grace that they and their lawyers uh, showed every time when helping our guests. Um, overall, I want to emphasize the pre-COVID, during COVID, post-COVID um, legal clinics and what COVID meant it for our clients and for the services we we offer at St. Francis House. So before COVID, each legal clinic at St. Francis House would do intakes for 13 to 15 guests. Some of them had made an appointment, but most of them would just walk in. I have personally seen the relief and pride in our folks' eyes after they talked to the lawyer <laughs> um, about the problem they had. Mostly was housing, uh, is housing or benefits like social security or disability or trying to seal their criminal record. For our guests, those problems are not 
ordinary problems, those are huge obstacles in order to get either housing or the care they need or getting up with a job, which would take them out of the street. Um, during COVID, the legal help from lawyers clearing house went uh, uh, online, um, remote, I would say, um, like many other things. But we at the shelter had to send home all the volunteers uh, also. So even if we had had access to the lawyers here, they wouldn't have been allowed to come. Um, during COVID, we one third of our staff remained in the shelter, uh, running all of the services in with no volunteers all the way through until the end. So if there is one thing I want to I I want to bring to you is the state of vulnerability that the pandemic brought to my eyes. I, I worked with my with my coworkers through COVID here. And the idea of our guests that are homeless and had no power to keep distance, had no power to stay home and had no capacity to take any of the precautions we were taking. Um, during those very, very difficult times, um, Lawyers Clearing House was responding to us through the phone many times, trying to coordinate Zoom meetings um, in order not to leave people alone with their legal problems. Um, but it was so different. I, I would try to explain to our guests, listen, um, the lawyers are not coming, but but you can connect with them via Zoom or you can call this number. Sorry, Sean, I don't know how many times I gave your number, uh, but always the answer from the guests was, but when are they coming back? <laughs> so um, by now you probably have inferred correctly that I'm advocating for lawyers to come back in person to our shelters. Um, in a post-COVID world, um, the pro bono services for the homeless are so important. And this is what I want to devote my few minutes to um, picking through my papers so I don't waste them trying to find the right way, the right word in English. So bear with me. Um, I understand like what just said that the conveniency of connecting via Zoom with the with the clients and it may allow for more uh, clients to be seen, but I want to, to use this minutes to emphasize the inconvenience of this format from the point of view of our homeless guests. Uh, the average age of our guests is 47. Many of them sleep outside and don't even have a phone, much less are they familiar with Zoom technology. The sole prospect of arranging a Zoom meeting with lawyers is not just intimidating, but deterring for them. Many of our guests have language barriers. 20% of our population is Hispanic or Latino, and they do not speak English. 
Those problems are easier to solve at the shelter with bilingual staff or with case managers that are familiar to the guests. Other point is that many of our clients have difficulty keeping appointments and having the opportunity to just walk into the legal clinic without an appointment when it's happening in a familiar space, that may be the only chance that they get to have access to legal help. Our guests also are way more trusting and comfortable coming to the shelter and talking in person to the lawyers that the shelter trusts in order to help them. From the point of view of the lawyers, even when I'm not one, uh, please let me try to show you the advantages of coming to our shelter in person. Remoteness is yet another mediation in the relationship lawyer-client. The lawyers volunteering in person get to experience the shelter in person and the client in person. That proximity promotes empathy and better understanding on both parts. The shelter environment should also be reassuring for the lawyers coming in in terms of safety and in terms of seeing the prospective clients in their usual space and behavior. Don't forget that many of our guests deal with mental health issues that would make a Zoom meeting very difficult in many cases. Even if the lawyers attending can't take the case of walking guests, the sole act of personally explaining that to the guest and maybe referring the guest to a different provider or sending them in a different direction means a lot to our guests because a lawyer told me so. This kind of help saves the guests time and efforts, so scars when homeless or poor. When they, wrongly think, when they wrongly think they have a case or when they try to find legal help from the wrong lawyers or the wrong firms for their case. From the point of view of the shelter also, the legal clinic at the shelter with lawyers and clients physically present is a service. The shelter just referring clients to the lawyer's clearing house or giving them a phone is just a resource. And we at St. Francis House want to keep the legal clinic as a service to our guests. Fabiana, thank you so much. I wanna um I wanna just pause there um just to, to remind people you'll see the in the handout that um Sean is this fantastic resource at Lawyers Clearinghouse um, who leads the mass legal clinic for the homeless. Mm -hmm. um, and I hate to um to cut short um but I want to make sure that we hear from Lola um, yep. before the program ends. But thank you um, for your inspiring remarks and really giving us a sense of what it's like to be, um, from a perspective, a homeless client and, and how important it can be to have that in-person contact. I think that point is really resonates for us. So thank you so much. And I hope that those in our, our viewing audience can spare a couple extra minutes just to make sure we can hear about the very important work we're gonna, um, that Lola Remy from the Women's Bar Foundation is about to present. Lola? You're on, uh, you ready to unmute. Okay. Hi everybody. I lost two minutes from unmuting. It was 30 seconds, but I'm gonna take a little more time. Um, I did want to mention, I'm going to talk a lot about supporting survivors of domestic abuse. And that is the work that mostly Women's Bar Foundation is doing. But if that is a population that you'd like to help, volunteering with any of these other programs will absolutely get you there. Our clients don't live in a bubble. 
and the abuse touches every aspect of their lives, including consumer issues, including housing, including access to food, including all kinds of things. So if it's difficult for you to witness the violence and the abuse firsthand, immigration issues as well, um, do reach out to anybody else and work with them. But for the Women's Bar Foundation, if you feel up to doing this work in this way, um, we do have three different ways to be involved. And we encourage people to really be honest with themselves about how they best work with difficult material. Um, so we have three lengths of time. So first we have our restraining order project, which assists individuals who are in a pretty critical moment in their abuse. That is something has happened, somebody did something to somebody, usually something physical or violent and the client needs relief right away. That is the protection of an order to keep their abuser a certain distance from where they live, from where they work, from where they worship or anything like that. Those cases are pretty fast and quick. Typically the client, by that point, that is the person, the person will have gone to court and filed the complaint ex parte against the other party without their knowledge. And they will get a temporary order. And that's when they call us. The return on those is only 10 days. So by nature, there's not a ton of time to prepare those cases, fortunately and unfortunately. Unfortunate because sometimes it does mean you can't tell the entire story in the way that you might like, especially as attorneys, we really like to cross the T's and dot the I's and really get into the meat of the matter. But since the client is coming to us, even if they come to us the day after they get the order, if they're returning in 10 days and we're not counting weekends, I mean, weekends total the 10 days, you don't have 10 days to prepare the material the materials. Realistically, you have five days. And I generally tell people that if you're spending more than 10 hours preparing for a restraining order, you're doing too much. There's just not the time to present the material in front of a judge that you gather over the course of a ton of time. First of all, the clients don't tend to have a ton of evidence. It's mostly their story, their word, their experience of the abuse that they're bringing. So it's not typical that you're having to discover medical records or financial records or things like that. So it is pretty quick to turn around. If that's something that suits your work style, please reach out and we've got plenty of 298 cases that you can get involved with right away. We also offer representation on a limited basis and that works best for an individual who likes to know when the date of the hearing is coming. It's less nebulous than a general representation. So typically the client will come to us because they've been served with a notice to appear on a motion, maybe they filed a motion, they already have the date. And we tend to not consider cases that have hearings within two weeks. So typically there'll be about a month to prepare and get ready. That does involve usually filling out financial statements. Typically, depending on what the issue is, you might need some evidence, some affidavits or things like that from pediatricians, from school, things like that. But within a month, typically most people can get the materials they need to prepare those cases. Um, and so that does not bind you to the case for the long term, but it is an opportunity to impact the client's life in a pretty big way. We used to see clients, we still see clients come to us with temporary orders that they entered into at motion hearings without really understanding that this is the order that's going to dictate the terms of the case until the end. So the clients are living under all of the challenges of chronic stress and trauma regarding housing, food scarcity, housing scarcity. And so they walk into a court system and they just want whatever the issue is to go away. 
So the opposing party says, I want you to drop my child off for me, for me to visit from Lawrence to Brockton every day at two o'clock. And the, the client says, fine, whatever. And they walk out without thinking that their car is not reliable, without thinking that their shift work is not stable and that they have to run this by their supervisor, they have to get on a clock and that they may not be able to do this. And then they start missing the meetings. They start not dropping the child off. And all of a sudden they're in contempt. And we've been seeing more and more where judges are actually ordering our clients who are low income individuals to pay attorney's fees in contempt cases. I used to never see that, but I've seen it in the last handful of years where the clients are coming with orders to pay an attorney $2,000, $3,000. It's not a million dollars, but our clients don't have $2,000 to pay for an attorney to file a contempt um, against them. So LER is incredibly important preventing our clients from ending up in situations where A, they're agreeing to things that they can't possibly meet to and B, defaulting on orders that they agreed to without understanding. The last opportunity we have is, it's a two opportunity, is long-term volunteering. That is where a client shows up and says, I'm in a terrible situation. I've decided I need to make a different choice for myself and my family and my children. I'd like to file for divorce. Can you help? And then the volunteer will take the case, file the complaint all the way through until a judgment for divorce is entered. That does, if we're honest, take two, 18 months, at least 20, 24, or at least 18 months. So they're quite long. If you are the kind of person who enjoys a slow burn and you'd really like to become very familiar with a client's life, they love it. They appreciate it. They're so grateful for it. And you hold their hand through everything from initial filing to all of the motion appearances to explaining what the judgments mean and explaining what the orders are, all of that. This might be the best way for you to be involved. Along with that, we also have opportunities for mentors. All of our mentors are also volunteers. The WBF staff is quite small. We have one junior staff attorney, one senior staff attorney, and myself. So we don't do the mentoring mostly. We don't do the mentoring ourselves. If you somehow have a ton of family law experience and you'd like to not be back in court all the time, but you think you can support a newer attorney taking these cases, please reach out. Um, so those are the opportunities that we have. I went very quick. We're two that was three. impressive, Lola. You got a lot of information across in a very short time. Um, and as I've noted, there, all of these opportunities will be highlighted in a handout you'll be getting soon. So hopefully you'll have the opportunity to, to look closely at that. Feel free to, you'll get a recording of this program if you want to um, hear uh, you know, more carefully some of these opportunities. Thank you all for joining us. And a very special thank you to um, Lily Richards, who's a co-op student at Wilmer Hale, who um, made the beautiful handout that you're about to receive and jump on and get involved uh, here and now, pro bono. Thank you.